And there you have the inherent paradox of the gospel. A child born in a manger who grows up to go to a cross before he's given the crown. And there's an inherent paradox to gospel living where Jesus says to those that would follow him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, and that that's the way you find life. And if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. So you could say, in a real sense, that we live in an upside-down world where what appears to be down is actually the way to up. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is going to explain to us in our study of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. Our text this morning begins with verse 5. This is evidence. Well, whenever you see this is evidence, you're going like, what is evidence? And it, of course, points us to the fact that of what came before. Uh, we study through this on uh, any given Sunday, and we're breaking up a letter that was all together. And so, for us to understand what we're talking about this morning, we've got to remember what Paul has already written in verse 4, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So we already learned from the early verses of 2 Thessalonians as well as from 1 Thessalonians that these believers' steadfast faith in persecutions and afflictions demonstrated that they were truly born again. Their endurance served to encourage other believers elsewhere. Paul could brag about them to these other churches. And it brought praise and thanksgiving to God because what Paul and his companions were witnessing and what everybody could see was that God was at work in these, these people's lives because of their extraordinary faith in very difficult circumstances. But we learned this morning that there's yet more value and significance to our sufferings for Christ. Whenever we face, whatever we face as we give ourselves to living for Jesus in the present age, we want to know that our afflictions have meaning, that they have value. And Paul wants us to know that what we suffer is all connected to a greater cause and will really matter when all is said and done, as well as mattering in the current situation. Our faithful endurance through all we're going through right now is inseparably connected to the coming of the Lord Jesus at the consummation of the age and all that He will accomplish at that time. We are part of the redemption epic that runs throughout human history and culminates at the coming of the Lord. So, what we suffer, what you may be suffering right now, not only, not only is for the present benefits of proving our faith, of providing encouragement for other saints, and of generating thanksgiving to God, for His transforming work in us. We also suffer for the sake of the coming kingdom at the return of the Lord. 
So let's read about it, beginning in verse 5 and reading down to verse 12. Follow with me as I read. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Suffering for the kingdom, the coming kingdom, shows the worth of God's kingdom. It vindicates God's wrath on His enemies, and Paul spends a good bit of time on that, and that it also reveals the glory of the Lord. His glory revealed in us and His glory given to us. So, first, consider with me that suffering for the coming kingdom shows the worth of God's kingdom. Verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And then he brings up this topic again in verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling. One of the ways that we establish value is by the price that we're willing to pay. Now, if you're like me, you love finding a good deal, to find at a small price a great treasure. Sometimes that works out well. Sometimes the great treasure that you thought you bought and sometimes at a great price, turns out to be not so good. We hate it when it turns out that our great deal was not worth the price we paid. We call that buyer's remorse. Well, what is the value of belonging to the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus? What is the value of standing blameless before God because of the merits of Jesus Christ? How could anyone afford a residence in the royal capital of the universe, the heavenly city? Who could buy immortality? And who could earn sinlessness never to sin again ever? Who could pay passage to a land where death is gone, and all pain and sickness and sorrows and tears are wiped away. What is 
the value of that. Paul told the Romans that the sufferings of the present time, and Paul wasn't one who was kind of sheltered from, you know, the hard things of life. He lived the hard things of life. Paul told the Romans that the sufferings of the present time aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. In other words, we will never, ever suffer buyer's remorse, no matter what it costs us to be part of the kingdom. But this does raise a question. How can it be righteous for God, and because that's what he talks about here, the justice, the righteousness of God, how can it be righteous for God to account sinners like us, and we know that we are, in fact, we know that we're such sinners that it's hard for us to open up to other people and let them in to see how bad we actually are. That's why we have our times of confession and, and silent confession, because that hopefully lets you be brutally honest with God about where you really are. How can it be righteous for a God to account sinners like us worthy of such an infinite kingdom? The text says that he's putting it forth plainly, that he's presenting evidence that we are worthy when we endure persecution and affliction with steadfastness and hope. In other words, we know that it's on the merits of Jesus that we get into the kingdom, but how does God display to the world that he's doing the right thing to make us part of the kingdom? It's the suffering we endure for the sake of the kingdom. In verse 11, Paul says that he prays for these believers so that God will account them worthy of God's calling of them to be part of that everlasting kingdom. We will see that there are ways that we bring glory to the reputation of Jesus Christ by how we live in the power of God's grace upon us. Paul does not view praying for these believers as an unnecessary exercise on their behalf but as part of God's design for how God's will is fulfilled in the lives of his people. Just as Christ prayed that despite Satan's attacks, Peter's faith would not fail, Paul prays that despite the affliction that the enemies of the gospel are bringing upon these believers, their faith will not fail either. God's sovereignty is not a call to prayerlessness, just the opposite. Because we desire His will to be done, because He is all-powerful to answer our prayers, and because He has commanded us to pray, we pray for others. We don't have to understand fully how that works. We just need to do it. The prophet Samuel said to the Israelites, far be it from me to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Daniel prayed. For the Jews returned from captivity on the basis of Jeremiah's prophecy that their exile would be 70 years. Without the persecution and affliction, the evidence of our calling would not be nearly so clear. And thus, the vindication of God's righteousness would not be nearly so obvious. We can pray for God to work through our suffering in this way, and for these great purposes. Our suffering for the sake of the kingdom highlights its worth 
and displays God's righteousness in those who are part of his kingdom. So this involves kind of thinking about hard times in a different way. So think with me. When you compare the worth of the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus, what afflictions are you willing to endure? I mean, nobody wants to suffer just for suffering's sake. That's weird, okay? But, but when you think about the worth of the kingdom, what are you willing to suffer? And how does keeping in mind that the afflictions or persecutions that you face right now have kingdom value encourage you to hang in there and endure? And what are ways that you can increase your estimate of how valuable Christ's kingdom is. You know, when we gather together and we hear the choir sing, he shall reign forevermore, forevermore, and our hearts are stirred with these truths, somehow the kingdom feels more valuable. But on Monday morning, on a rainy cold day, it may not. How can you bring your mind and your heart in line with the reality of the value of the kingdom? Because that's key to how you endure the pressure and the afflictions and the mistreatment that living for Christ may involve. Secondly, suffering for the coming kingdom vindicates God's wrath on his enemies. Look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just, righteous, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, sometimes, in fact, often in this world, it looks as if those who do harm to other people are getting away with it. But Paul says to us in this text, not so. God will pay them back for what they have done. And that is true of any mistreatment of those made in God's image. And it's doubly true of those who not only are made in God's image, as all human beings are, but are also His redeemed ones, redeemed by Christ and predestined to be conformed to His image and His character and His godly life. It's like a double attack on the image of God when people mistreat a believer. Now, as moral human beings... Human beings have natural sense that wrongdoing, especially wrongdoing that harms other people, ought to bring real consequences. It, d- it doesn't matter what a person professes about, you know, what's right and wrong and relativism and all that. You, somebody does them wrong. Somebody does harm to another person and seems to be getting away with it. They will be outraged. That's why they march. That's why they burn down cities. That's why we are just wired to have a moral compass, even if our moral compass gets skewed some. But often in human courts of law, those real consequences may not happen, or they may be misdirected. 
God will not fail to repay exactly what has been earned. He is the one in the universe who has every right to exercise wrath against evil. And sometimes people are squeamish about that, but who would you rather have exercise wrath? We are sinners ourselves, and our feeble attempts to bring judgment on evildoing is often tainted by our own sin and misdirected by our own misperceptions and limited by our own weaknesses and often skewed by our own agendas. God is the only one who can dispense righteous judgment absolutely perfectly, and He will do so at the appointed time. He's not worried that he's not going to get to it. It's not going to fall off the end of his to-do list. He's going to get it done. He will pay back with affliction those who have afflicted Christians. And at the same time, he will grant welcomed relief to those who've been persecuted. There's something about suffering that makes relief from it all the sweeter. Some of you are going through chemotherapy. You can hardly wait till that's done. Some of you go through some kind of procedure where uh, there's a long recovery. You can hardly wait till things are normal again, and somehow normal just feels amazing. Whereas before, maybe you shrug your shoulders, well, this is just normal. Suffering makes relief from it all the sweeter. God grants rest and relief to His people. I mean, and, and we see this promise uh, throughout the Word of God and from the lips of God Himself, Jesus calls to us, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give rest to your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11. Revelation 7 describes the saints who will be coming out of the great tribulation, who have suffered greatly for the Lord. And listen to the relief described in Revelation 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When will this settling the score happen, this retribution and relief? According to the second part of verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus is revealed, and he uses the term that's, that's used for the title of the last book of the New Testament, the revelation, the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus Christ from heaven. He is returning. He's not forgotten about us. He's coming with his mighty angels, far more powerful than human beings, inflaming fire, the fire of judgment, and inflicting vengeance that is complete punishment as deserved. This is why we can give place to wrath. We don't have to settle the score ourselves. We know God will settle the score, and He will do it perfectly. And He brings this on those who know not God. And at first glance, you think, well, wait a minute. How can that be fair? They don't know God. Well, this is a willful ignorance because God has made Himself known 
through what he created, according to Romans 1, and through our consciences regarding right and wrong and our awareness of a ruling moral law. When we do wrong, we, we, we have to suppress the truth that we know. And every one of us does that. The wrath of God, we're told in Romans 1, is already being revealed from heaven against such resistance to God. The Bible says it's the fool not the wise man, who says there is no God. And to say we cannot know for sure whether God exists is to count as nothing all the evidence God has freely given, all the evidence in creation of design and, and intricacy and, and proof that, that somebody powerful and intelligent had to put this all together, the the information given to us, the evidence of our own conscience, and then the written word of the prophets and the apostles preserved throughout centuries, the best attested ancient document in the world, and then finally, the, the ultimate revelation of God, the person of the Lord Jesus Himself who broke into our history, and all the world knows that He did. This is the time of year when all the world, I mean, people that reject God, the other 364 days of the year will talk about God, will talk about Jesus, and talk about the Savior, and sing the beautiful music that goes with it. God has made Himself known. So, not to know Him is a choice you're making. You're making that choice. It's not because he made himself. If he wanted to be difficult to find, the infinite God could make himself completely unfindable. What's the word for that? I just made it up. But anyway, uh, you know, if he wanted to hide, he can hide. And that's why Paul goes on to say, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The gospel is the good news. It's the news that brings joy. You obey good news by receiving it in faith and acting on it. Think about rushing to tell somebody some, some kind of good news. And they look at you and their eyes narrow and they say, I don't believe you. How does that make you feel? What, you're calling me a liar? If you tell somebody good news, you expect them to rejoice with you. If they don't rejoice with you, instead they stiff-arm you, that's an insult. Jesus said this in John 6, Then they said of him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God. It's one thing as a sinner by birth and by choice, to rebel against God and refuse to obey Him. That's our nature to do that. But to add to these sins the insult of refusing His kind gifts of forgiveness and of reconciliation with our Creator and Sustainer, to refuse His gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, to refuse the forever inheritance of eternal life as the immortal, incorruptible inhabitants of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness has taken up residence, that is nothing short of an outrage against the most glorious being in the universe. That is to despise His priceless gifts offered to us. It would be like Christmas morning 
Somebody has scrimped and saved or found just the perfect gift or gifts, and they present them to you, and you throw them in the trash in their presence. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The punishment will be eternal. Eternal ruination, not annihilation, because it never ends. And we find elsewhere that it involves torment forever in the lake of fire. Why? Because it's committing the greatest of sins to so insult and despise the greatest of beings in the universe, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The irony is that those who reject God and don't want Him around will get their wish, but it will not be anything like what they thought it would be, because God is the source of all that's good and all that's fruitful and all that's beautiful, even those that refuse to believe that God exists, even those that rebel against Him still enjoy God's good gifts every single day they're alive. When we refuse Him, all that is left in the final day is misery and destruction. It was the presence of God with man that made the Garden of Eden a paradise. It is His presence that makes a church family alive with the power and love of God. It is His presence in an individual believer that gives him or her life as a new creation in Christ. It is His presence that makes heaven, heaven. It is His presence in shining splendor, His glory of strength that rescues us and makes us and the entire universe new again. To be driven from His presence is perpetual misery and darkness and death. We were made by Him and for Him. If we are cut off from Him, we lose what it is to be truly human. We lose a destiny of splendor. It is a price you don't want to have to pay. Do the math. Take the evidence and take the gift. Given God's devastating, perfect judgment, what wrongs done against you can you leave to God's wrath rather than seeking vengeance yourself? Some of you are torn up inside because of wrongs done to you over the years. It could be your husband, it could be your wife, it, it could be a relative, it could be a co-worker, but you're, you're just eaten up inside with that. Let it go. Let it go. God will take care of it. And if you have refused to trust in Jesus despite God's gracious offer of salvation, how do you think you can endure His wrath on you forever? And there's not a Sunday that goes by that we don't have folk with us that have heard the gospel a thousand times if they've not heard it once, if they've heard it once. And they still refuse. That refusal will haunt you forever. Forever.
and ever. How much better would it be to seek the forever relief that God grants to his people? Third, our suffering for the coming kingdom reveals the glory of the Lord. Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. He's coming to be glorified in his saints. Those who belong to him will be revealed in all the splendor of their transformed identity and character. This is how God makes these audacious promises that one day will be blameless and incorruptible and immortal and, and full of goodness that is ours through Christ and through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this will be a day when they are marveled at among all who have believed. They are the only survivors of God's wrath. And the goodness they will experience will be beyond what we can even imagine now. It will be astonishing. It will be something to marvel at. Because our testimony to you was believed, Paul says. In other words, their part in this amazing future is rooted in that mundane moment in history when they put their faith in the gospel of Jesus. Their moment of conversion seems like such a small thing. In fact, you know, so often that conversion, the light going on and faith coming alive in us happens like in a service like this or in the dead of night or when somebody opens a Gideon Bible and reads it in their room and it, there's this change on the inside. And, and it takes years often for the level of that change to become apparent and, and ultimately it becomes just amazingly apparent at the coming of the Lord. But at the moment, believing the testimony of the apostles, it seems small compared to the grand destiny that will be ours. Nothing we did, nothing we paid. We just took the gift of salvation on faith that God was telling us the truth that he would make good on it. That's it. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end, for this purpose, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. A constant prayer for God to make them worthy of this destiny to which he's called them. That worthiness, in other words, will show up not just at the end of the age, but it shows up now in our daily living. That God may fulfill every resolve for good. God, God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, according to Philippians. Our desire for doing good grows and our capacity to do good grows. And Paul prays that that growth process will reach its full capacity. Every work of faith by his power. So saving faith does not and cannot remain alone 
Because once we're born again, God's mighty power is at work in us, energizing good works. We who are created in God's image to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever are like broken machines uh, without a power source, and God restores us and fixes what's wrong with us on the inside and plugs in the power, and the machine works. And we're finally able to start bringing God the glory He deserves. And what is the ultimate purpose? Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. His character, His reputation is made to shine through you. It's made for people to see the beauty of Jesus clearly in you. That's a tall order, right? I mean, that's, it's so often those that claim the name of Jesus that, that dishonor Him, that bring Him the opposite of glory. But God's design is for you to show people what Jesus is like because of what's in you, for people to actually see Jesus in you. And more astonishing yet, and His getting that honor that He deserves is, it says, and you in Him. We're used to saying, you know, all glory to God, and, and God should be glorified in us. He flips it, and He says, we are glorified in Him. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we get honor that He deserves. Because His work in us and His work for us makes us into people who actually shine, who are actually admirable, whose character and conduct is beautiful and beneficial like God's, people who deserve praise because they become authentically good themselves because of what God has done in them. We see the beginnings of this even now. And one day it will be perfect and complete. I mean, it's amazing to watch the change of countenance of a person that's brought from darkness to light. It's a joyous thing to watch their life change from self-centered and hurtful toward others to being Christ-centered and and others-oriented and one who is constantly at work helping other people. We now live in difficult days. Days of battle against sin, days of enduring affliction, days of enduring persecution, depending on where you live and at what time. But by the power of God, we endure. By the power of God, we remain steadfast. By the power of God, our faith holds firm. And the outcome of all of this on the day of Christ's return is that the Lord himself will be glorified in us and we will be glorified in him. Now, knowing this makes whatever we go through now worth it. It is not wasted effort. It is not wasted pain. It's going to magnify the shining splendor of Jesus It's going to display the glory of what we are becoming because of Him. 
So how does knowing Jesus gets great glory now and forever through your endurance of suffering help you remain steadfast in your faith? And how does knowing Jesus is making you into a glorious person of shining splendor give you strength to remain faithful now? And maybe on a more practical level, that's the psychological side, the practical level, what good are you resolved to fulfill? And what works of faith would show His good power in you? When your life is hard, when the pressure of affliction is great, when mistreatment because you love Jesus is hounding you, remember the infinite value of enduring such suffering for the sake of the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself tells his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Suffering for the coming kingdom shows the worth of God's kingdom. It vindicates God's wrath on his enemies, and it reveals in us the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for this passage, and Lord, we know we have brothers and sisters who suffer far greater persecution than what we have suffered, and we have no guarantee that our day will not come, and it comes in small doses even now. But Lord, we do know something about affliction because that is common to man. We know something about pressure and tribulation. And we know that as we seek to live for you, that that doesn't make the affliction go away. In fact, often it increases it. There's a great burden to fighting the sin battle. There's great courage called for to share the gospel or to do the right thing even when it costs us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would keep the coming kingdom in mind and that we would give ourselves daily to the king of that kingdom, the Lord Jesus, who has laid down his life to give us eternal life, who is interceding for us as our resurrected Lord and who is coming back again to set all things right. And God, I pray for those with us this morning who for whatever reason have have put you off on trusting you, perhaps even to the point of insulting you and denying your existence. Oh, God, bring upon them the horrors of hell that they might be awakened out of their foolishness before it's too late. And Lord, bring before them the glories of your goodness that they might desire Jesus Christ above every idol competing for their affection. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.